the topic of anxiety, which we've talked about here on the diary before, it's interesting. Something I figured out this week. So if you've heard it, you've heard me talk about it before. If you've listened to the show at all, you've heard me talk about anxiety from time to time. Uh, the particular brand I sort of deal with, which is certainly of the illogical ilk, the kind that doesn't make much sense, that uh, seems to be coming from a voice in my head that other more rational voices hear and go, what are you even talking about? Yet somehow that voice is dominating. It's like a, a rabid dog in a steak farm. What's a steak farm? Let's, let's change that. A rabid dog in a meat packing plant. It just refuses to be not heard kind of thing. That's a terrible example, but you know what I mean. Loud and annoying seems to want all of the attention. No matter how illogical or irrational it may be at the time. So, my, you know, it's a lifelong thing I've had to deal with and it's had its peaks and valleys, but um, 2014 and 2015 have been... In, particular for some reason uh some of the harder times and i don't know why but you know working away working at it doing doing the best you can and something occurred to me today or yes i guess yesterday but i also thought some more about it today and that's this i am much more sympathetic as a result of having to deal with that for so many years to other people's plights whether they be in a similar vein like if there's struggling with something like that or whatever. There's a, almost like an empathy machine created by unreasonable anxieties. So I think I'm better, able to better relate to somebody who's maybe going through a hard time or who is dealing with something that to them at least, and maybe only to them, but to them, feels like they're alone in, you know, somebody who I'm just trying to think of an example here. Um, it could be a, some, something as simple as somebody breaking their arm, playing baseball, sliding into second base, broke his arm, feeling like he's alone in the world. He's the only person this happened to, there goes my whole baseball career, whatever. It's not the best example, but you know, other people where their aunt, uh, was diagnosed with cancer or, um, this family's having a difficult financial time. He, um, his job of 30 years let him go. And now, you know, he's an older guy who doesn't have options and it's not sure where to go and can't really start over. And whatever the situation may be, I feel like I am more automatically tuned to, to not be repulsed by people. Not repulsed, that's also a wrong, the wrong word. But not to be turned away from that because of the negative energy that sometimes brings. Because here's what I think fundamentally happens with human beings. I think that we are fundamentally interested in survival. I think that's, that, that's our primary evolutionary stance is that we are built to survive. And in some extreme cases, survival means destroying others to survive. Uh, thankfully, at least I believe we're living in a time now where that does not need to be the case. There's still people who do that, but we definitely don't live in a time where that needs to be the way. This isn't like a pack of lions trying to compete with another pack of lions. Sometimes it may feel that way, but I think we're better than we've ever been as human beings. But I think there is a built-in 
thing that just happens with people. So if you're you're um, at, at the mall and you see and you're let's say you're a kid and you see somebody with a with a horribly deformed face. Now, as a little kid, that frightens you. Why? Because your innate humanity says that isn't normal, and normal means survival, and I desire survival. Therefore, that freaks me out, and I don't want to be near it because it represents something that makes me feel less survivable. Survivorable. Is that a word? Uh, take the same kid, have him grow up, see the same deformity during his junior high years, let's say. Let's say he's 12 to 14 years old and sees this person at the mall. There's a likelihood that he and his buddies are going to make fun of that person. And if it's someone in their in their potential peer group, they may even go as far as you know physical bullying and things like that. But let's say it's just a, a, a person in a crowd. They're going to poke each other and laugh and say, oh, look at the look at the skeleton face Jimmy over there or whatever. They're going to, you know, it's going to be a big joke to them. They're going to really have zero empathy for it and are going to mock it and belittle it. But again, why? Not because they're inherently mean, spirited or whatever. They do it because it represents something different that somehow either overtly or covertly, threatens their sense of survival. I really think this is true. And I'm probably saying something that someone somewhere has already figured out and it's old news. But it just to me, it just, just hit me like a truck yesterday. And I don't know why. I don't know what was going on that made me think of this, but I'm um, still not sure. But it's this sense of like, I don't know, it's like, and adults do this too. It's just you see a weakness, you know, in somebody else, and then you capitalize on that somehow. So if you're in business and you are destroying your competition, well, what are you doing? You're you're creating more survivability potentially over somebody smaller. If you're, you know, if you're Walmart, you come into a small town, you say, well, we're going to put a Walmart here right in the middle of town. That's going to mean these 10 mom and pop shops are out. That's it. They've been here for 100 years, but that's it. They're out because, you know, they can't compete here. I mean, what are they doing? They're exercising the survival of the fittest idea, right? And they don't have a large ethical problem doing that because, again, it's just part of the extended philosophy or, or, or psychology that we all have about surviving. And sometimes surviving means stacking your deck. It means sandbagging. It means building up your defenses. It means redundancy so that if something does happen, you have all this to fall back on, or you've got a great, you've made a bigger footprint than you were, than you thought you were going to make, or that needed to be made. Let's put it that way. And why do you pay? I'm, I'm sorry to be using Walmart for all this, but why do you pay your employees less than other? comparable stores well because you can well why can you because you've replaced in the marketplace well what does that mean that means greater sustainability and survivability now i would like to put forward this idea that when we face those natural tendencies and then and then stare them down we actually make greater progress and therefore better sustainability and survivability survivability 
not survivability. Keep saying that. So if Walmart paid everybody a fair wage for what they do and are and all that, happier employees down the road, you're, you're just a better company, right? The short-term gains are not worth the long-term erosion to morale, to people's livelihood, to whatever. Um, and the same goes for, you know, if you've got some kids and they're all, you know, you always have this group of kids maybe picking on another kid because he's small or weak or, or, you know, he's mentally handicapped or something's going on and they're all gang, you know, ganging up on him. And then you always hear once in a while about the one kid who, despite the fact that he's not even the biggest kid there, stood up against the others and said, leave him alone. He didn't do anything to you. Just go away and get out of here, whatever. To his own peril, to his own loss of survivorness, right? Well, why? Why would he do that? Why would he put his instinct to survive on the line for somebody else? And it's a hard question to answer, but I just think it's enlightened. Like it's past all this. Where am I going with this? What's the point of this conversation? I'm getting a little philosophical, I realize that. But I just, I like the idea that maybe, just maybe, the next step in important, at least emotional evolution for human beings is for the norm not to be repulsed, not to be shocked, not to be defensive, but the norm to be immediately analytical about the situation and immediately thinking about it in terms of, a, of an empathetic response instead of a defensive one. Case in point, you're on an airline, you're on a plane, you're flying somewhere, and there's a kid behind you, a baby. Let's say it's an infant of some age. I don't know. Let's say he's 18 months old or less. Let's say he's 15-month-old baby behind you, okay? And the the tendency for your average conceited adult to get on that plane, sit down, and then as soon as the plane takes off, the air pressure starts to get bad, and the kid starts screaming and crying, and they cry for the whole four-hour flight. And most people, unfortunately, see that as just a huge inconvenience. I can't believe it. They'll complain to high heaven about it. They will speak of this child, this young, delicate, important life as the scourge of their month, of their day, of their hour, of their whatever. And they will treat it as if it is an object and not a human being and will never hear the end of it. I can't believe I flew all the way to Philadelphia with this screaming kid behind me. I mean, what's the deal? You know what I mean? Zero empathy for anyone in this situation, the baby or the mother. And that's just kind of the natural thing. And I'm not going to lie. I've certainly been irritated by things before. Not necessarily that case because I don't know. That's what I'm going to, what I tell you now may help explain that. But things annoy me that if I really thought about them and looked, looked at them through the eyes of a more analytical person, I might go, all right, well, let's assess what we're actually doing here. Who's here? What is this? What's going on? And in the plain scenario, what you have is a baby who's colicky or upset or you know hurting or whatever, and a mother who's going to try to do all she can to do what she can. She still has to travel. They don't have a special plane where you get to ostracize the babies and make them go separately. We're sort of all in that together, right? So you're faced with a choice. Do I look at that situation and decide it's all about me and my comfort level? Or can it actually be about us and our ability to solve this problem together? Despite the fact that you don't know these people and they don't know you. Well, the answer is yes. 
course you can. And I've seen the example over and over and over because of my wife. Every flight I've ever been on with my wife, if there is anyone within remote distance of her row that has a baby who's upset because of air pressure or whatever it may be, you know, unlike you where you can just chew some gum and swallow a few times and you're good, babies don't know how to do that, right? So when that happens, whenever she can, assuming that she can get up and move about the cabin freely or, or if she's right in front or behind them, she will offer to hold the baby to try to entertain to, you know, bob it on her knee. I've seen her hold a baby who was not feeling well, and that baby ended up yakking on her, and she laughed it off, wiped it off, and told the mother everything was fine, uh, made babies stop crying entirely, and for big, long stretches of flight, calm completely down, laugh, smile, fall asleep on her before she gave him back to the mom. That isn't just Kim going, I love babies, give me some babies. That's Kim going, we are in this together and I feel your pain and I know what this feels like and I want to help you. And she's always done that. And without any kind of pretense and no but slapping herself on the back and no expectation for credit for it. Just quietly does it. And it changes people's lives. And I'm not and I mean that when I say that. Like it's not just a small inconvenience that was somehow curbed and everyone just moves on. I know the kind of appreciation those mothers have because I can see it in their faces. It's this strange combination of desperation and appreciation that is very distinct when it comes to a public situation like that where the thing you care most about in this world that is in your arms right now is the subject of this and you would do anything for him or her and you've got nameless, faceless jerk holes giving you the stink eye or saying, can you please shut your baby up? I'm trying to finish my spreadsheet or whatever, right? That's a rough position to be in. And I, so to get to my original point about anxiety, I think that anxiety and the kind I have, which is more about irrational thought and irrational worry and less about reality. (laughs) Um, it has helped me at least be more empathetic to those around me who may be dealing with something either similar or worse or even less or whatever, but still knowing what's going on, especially when it's somebody who is less willing to talk about it on a podcast that 12 or so thousand of you listen to who wants to keep that stuff private, but I can still sort of tell and you know what you can do to help. And there's always a way to help. There's always a way to do it. And I'm convinced that the happy guy is the one that said, oh, he's fine. Don't worry about it. And helps try to calm the baby down and, and does the, takes the village to help Ray, you know, t- takes like a, a, hum- a humanist approach to helping people. That person's happier. They've got life and they got challenges and they got all the stuff they got to deal with. But I guarantee that's more satisfaction in that life than the one of some stuck up snooty jerk who is just put off by everybody inconveniencing him and storms out of there like we owe him something. There's no happiness there. There's nothing there. And I don't like being judgmental because obviously there's a lot of shades of gray and there are, you know, there's, there's no black and whites here and I'm not trying to be reductive about this whole issue, but it just feels like sometimes we could do better with that, you know? And I'm talking to me too. Like when I see Kim do this stuff, I'm like, Ugh, you should do this more. You should be more like that. So maybe it helps to have an example around, but isn't that, I mean, isn't that kind of what we're 
all trying to figure out is can we can we take it to a level that's better than the crappy level that it's been you know can we attain a step or two ahead of where we were or either on the macro level as a human race or as a private individual who's been on the planet for a few decades you know can i take it can i take it just to the next little thing sure i can so can you and can we fall back and screw it up again sure but we can claw back history is a rising road it's one of my favorite quotes of all time and I'm a big believer in it. And statistically, it bears out. If you look at the human race today compared to even 50 years ago, uh, crime is at an all-time low. Wars are at an all-time low. You never know it listening to 24-hour networks, but statistically, it's true. Youth violence, way down. Rapes are down. Murders are down. Um, all of it. Across the board, pretty much. There are pockets of horrible. That's that's always true. But on the whole, more people are eating, less people are starving. More people have medical care, less people don't. People live longer. People have happier, healthier lives on the whole than they used to. People aren't dying as young as they used to. All that stuff. It all bears out. I'm not just making that up. That is where we're at. It is a line that rises through time. And it's because we slowly figure this crap out. I'm just showing my own little personal, kind of where my head's at lately. And it's also, I don't know, for me, it's been good to try and think of this more often because I tend to get real miserable uh, with my my own issues, whatever they may be. You know, I've had this GI stuff that's been driving me nuts for the last year and a half contributing a lot to stress and worry and everything else. And there are days when it hurts so bad, I'm like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, what am I doing? And I think I'm the only person in the world who's suffering some sort of pain at the moment, or I'm the only one that must be having to deal with this. How come nobody else has this problem? And then I realize, Scott, every, there's millions of people in way worse situations, way worse conditions. What are you even talking about, Right. And you're hit with that and you're like, oh, yeah, totally right. It can be very humbling. But because I have this tendency to get all gloom and doom about those things, uh, it's very helpful helpful for me to be reminded, even if it's just me doing this podcast in a deliberate effort to get the words out and say what I want to say. So I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you guys are having a wicked week. If you have any comments or feedback for me, scott at frogpants.com. I'll see you next time on The Diary of a Cartoonist. This show is part of the Frog Pants Network. Get more at frogpants.com.